Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This episode, we'll be talking, or we'll be wrapping up the Gold Cup group stage, uh, Pulisic, American Gladiators, 2026 qualifying for the U.S., El Trafico history being made, Weston passing on soccer, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Masi, how are you doing on this uh, Wednesday, July 5th in the year 2023? I'm doing well. You know who had a great July 4th? Who's that? Sean Sullivan. Really? What did he do? As long as we've been doing this podcast, we've always received our rundowns the day before. (laughs) Yesterday, as you and I were working, covering the Working our ass off, yep. We received an email from Sean saying the rundown would not come until day of which I interpreted as I'm having too good a time right now. When you're drinking your eighth beer and stuffing chicken wings in your mouth, you're you know, building a rundown is a buzzkill. Knee deep in July 4th celebration uh, was our producer, Sean. But, you know, he works hard. So let's give him a day. And yes, as you mentioned, we were, you know, we were bringing you the content. We were giving you the soccer because soccer never sleeps, even on a uh, national holiday for the U.S. It's still happening. And uh, Gold Cup continued on. So we were doing that. Watch anything, my friend? I know we've been working a lot, but you watch anything? I had a good July 3rd. I did go see Indiana Jones and oh, the yeah. Dial of Destiny. Pay it off. And? Not great, but <laughs> better than the last one. A much more respectable effort. Better than the crystal one that we mentioned. What was that, 2002 or something that that came out? It was a long time ago that that came out. I think it was more recent than that. Really? But yeah, one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. This one, not as bad. This was actually- What was the good part of it? I mean, just there was nostalgia and a romance in in seeing Indy one last time and that kind of stuff or- Just flowed better than the last one. Okay. Were there, I mean, was it it funny? Was it exciting? Did you- It was exciting, yes. All right, good, good. Uh, Let's see, what did I see? I saw- or I watched Muscles and Mayhem, the unauthorized story of American gladiators. Do you know what American gladiators are? Sure. You do. So this was this phenomenon back in the, uh, in the 90s. And it was, you know, you took athletes and super athletes almost, and you made this almost this all-star team of men and women who would compete against other athletes and oftentimes much more of a pros versus joes type of thing here and these athletes that were the the gladiators were competing in these crazy events and it goes into the whole production of the show and all the dynamic behind it i watched it sporadically when it was on and i did not think i was going to enjoy this documentary as much as i did but i really ended up appreciating almost the family that this group of athletes became as they went through not just having to perform and the physical demands uh, that were that were put on these uh, these men and women, but also getting put through the whole Hollywood machine and seeing how all that took uh, had an impact on them. So I recommend it. Uh, and I think it's yeah, I think there's a couple of American Gladiator uh, gladiator documentaries out there, but this is the one that just came out on Netflix, and uh, it's pretty good. And it's you know it's just an hour and a half uh, of your time. Uh, Mossy, ready to light this candle? Let's do it. All right, where should we start? This upcoming Sunday, both the U.S. men's and women's national teams are in action. Let's start with the women. They have their send-off match before heading down under. They will play a friendly against Wales in San Jose. What would you like to see from this game that would make you feel good about their prospects for winning a third consecutive World Cup crown? I mean, it's interesting when we have these send-off games because obviously they are there to bring attention to what is coming, to celebrate, and literally to send this team off in the best possible way. And you don't want to give too much away if you're a coach because this is, for most teams, the last time that we will see them in a public setting playing a competitive game. 
Uh, but if you're a coach, whether it's Flacco or anybody else, you need to use every opportunity that you uh, that you have. So I don't think that Vladko is going to start, for example, the 11 that is going to start in that first game against Vietnam, let alone the 11 that's going to start against that second game against, uh, against the Netherlands. So obviously I would like to see a positive and, and I guess almost most importantly, a um, injury-free type of 90 minutes. That's probably what every coach goes with. Like, just nobody get hurt this close right now. Because I think they've figured out what their 11s are and what they have and what they, uh, what they don't have. Yeah, God forbid Vietnam know what that U.S. 11 is going to be ahead How of time. They can How prepare. dare you, Mossy? How dare you? I will not abide by that uh, you know, type of uh, you know, talk about the, uh, the Vietnamese women's national team. But you took part in two World Cups yourself. I'm sure you played friendlies right before, after the squad had been announced, when you knew you were going. How nervous were you about injuries in those games? What's in these players' heads when they take the field in matches like this? To your point, it is in your head because we've all seen, an unfor- and we will see, there will be somebody, unfortunately, that will go down. And in, and in going down and having that injury that keeps you out of the World Cup, it's the denial of a dream. It's a denial, in some cases, of a long-time dream. And in some cases, it's the only opportunity that these young women will get because it is not promised that you will go to another World Cup, either because you don't qualify or you don't make the team. And so it can be devastating to the, you know, to the emotions and to, um, to the psyche of a player. And, and yes, but I do think that they are all professional and they are mature enough to know that if you try to hold back, I'm not saying do stupid stuff. And yes, there are moments where you go into a tackle or pull out of a tackle that on the day playing in a World Cup, you probably probably wouldn't. But I think if you start to pull punches, it can, it can, it can be problematic for you. And there is still a competition within the competition. So you're still fighting for time, whether it's a starting position, whether it's to get on the field, or whether it's to keep that starting position that you already have. And every little bit counts. Might not always count in the coach's mind, but in your mind, every little bit counts. And if this is the last opportunity in a competitive setting to put your best foot forward, to make your case to be starting, you're going to do everything uh, that you possibly can. But yeah, obviously the fear of injury, and we've seen so many injuries leading into this Women's World Cup, that for me ultimately is the overriding thing. I just don't want anybody to get hurt and to be denied that wonderful opportunity to play in a World Cup. But so when the squad was announced, we did a special show. We had Jen Cooper on. We talked about how one of the big lineup questions is who would be that third player up front alongside Morgan and Sophia Smith. So you wouldn't read that much into whoever starts this game up top. No, I, I, I wouldn't. I mean, I think Vladko, it's not that he's trying to be secretive, but I do think that he is going to use every opportunity that he gets to try some to try some different things. And again, this is not just the U.S. situation. England tied Portugal the other day, a few, uh, a few days ago. By the way, Portugal in the U.S. group. Um, and so it's, it's a good result in terms of the headline for Portugal to tie the European champions, uh, England. And it's, I guess it's not a great result as their kind of send-off game. But I also wouldn't read too much, uh, too much into that in terms of whether England, oh, no, this is a, this is a problematic type of thing uh, for England. I think whatever questions that you have, they're not going to be answered by your final send-off game. Uh, incidentally, excellent story on the website, foxports.com, written by Lakin Littman regarding the U.S. women's national team culture and how it's passed down from generation to generation. Yeah, we've, we, you know, we've talked about that. And playing for a national team, and I guess it, you, you even just extend it to playing soccer in my country would be the United States, but whatever country or culture you're in, I do think that there is an element, whether you're men or women, of wanting to have it be better when you are done and wanting to have pushed it along and progressed and evolved and grown so that whatever that next generation is that comes in, it's better. I mean, it's kind of like a parent. You want better things for your children. And in essence, you know, whether it's a, an Alyssa Thompson or any young player that's coming into it, they all stand on the shoulders of, of giants that have come before. But whether it's an Abby Wambach or a Mia Hamm or anybody else, I think they look at it with incredible pride as to what they are passing on. And this is a really fun and interesting and almost, you know, a beautiful way of looking at this national team that, by the way, has been incredibly successful. So they're not just passing on the traits and the characteristics and the personalities and the, the ethos of it. 
but it's all framed in the success that is demanded and expected as you go on. Because that success is where that platform for all of these voices and all of these personalities have come from. And without it, it's very difficult. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult at least to have it amplified in the way that it is and has been done consistently. And the start of the World Cup is right around the corner. There were some people I worked with yesterday on Gold Cup that the next time I'm going to see them will be in Sydney. Some people working on this podcast today, like Aaron Schechter, who the next time we see her will be in Sydney. There are people leaving within the week uh, to head over to Australia. Our set is already uh, uh, almost, not almost done, but it's in the process of being put together. Yeah. I might have just given out bad information. I'm now told Erin will be here for Monday's pod. So that will be her final one in L.A. I was preparing this emotional goodbye today, and evidently that's so not going to happen. So you can save that then yes. for after the next show. You know, we love when you get emotional. So, yeah, there's, look, there's a, there was a whole army of Fox folks, great men and women that are going to be on site uh, and down in Australia and New Zealand, uh, obviously mostly in Australia, where our set is going to be down there in Sydney. And then there's a whole army also back here in the uh, in the U.S. Uh, and in L.A. in particular that will be working night and day to give you the Women's World Cup content that you crave. Uh, what else, Masi? We transitioned to the Gold Cup. The group stage is in the books. It ended on July 4th with the final two matches in groups C and D. A crazy day, by the oh. way. 25 goals scored in the four games, including 10 in one match. Costa Rica, Martinique, 6-4, the highest scoring match in Gold Cup history. When the dust settled, Panama and Costa Rica advanced from Group C, Guatemala and Canada from Group D. The quarterfinals are set. Saturday, AT&T Stadium in Dallas. We have Panama, Qatar, Mexico, Costa Rica. Then Sunday in Cincinnati, Guatemala, Jamaica, and the United States taking on Canada. We thought it might be Canada. It is. Your thoughts on that matchup? All right. So before we get into the uh, the quarterfinal matchups, and I, they are they are delectable. I don't want to go back because um, I, I love giving people a peek behind the curtain. And you know I love you. And you are incredibly valuable to everything that we do. And you mentioned all the goals that were scored, right? And as, they, as more and more goals went in, uh, myself and Landon Donovan and Rob Stone were on the desk working. And uh, at one point, Landon, well, at multiple points, Landon started talking and, and being amazed at how many goals were being scored. And he felt like there was some historic thing going on. So immediately when we have one of these questions that uh, either we can't answer or in most cases, it's we're too lazy to actually go and do the work and uh, and answer it. Who do we go to? We go to the man, the myth, the legend, you. And so a couple of times we went to you. And at one point you had to respond to us. So usually you just blank us and, and say, you know, I have other things to do because you're doing a million things uh, behind. And we always think as talent that what we want and what we need is the most important thing in any moment. And it's not even close because you're doing so many other things. So this question as to whether this was historic or not was looming over. And you came back and you talked to all of us and said, and I loved your honesty. You said, Listen, we're trying to figure this out. I know I've been asked this question a lot of times and you obviously had a whole lot of other stuff going, going on and said, I don't know now, but obviously this is a big deal. Well, what frustrates me is that there's a goal scored in, say, the 20th minute. And the studio crew does not need to know the ramifications of that goal right away. You're not going to be speaking on television for another 25 minutes. I'm trying to make sure the game talent, the game BAs are going to be throwing up live standings are on top of everything that's happening. And yet you guys can't resist getting in my ear in those moments and saying, Mossy, what does that mean? Who's going through now? And it's just extra voices that I don't need to be listening to at that point, particularly because there was a point in Group C last night where... El Salvador and Costa Rica, it was coming down to fair play points. So I was having to calculate how many yellows they had each picked up in their previous games. And so as I'm trying to figure that out, Landon's in my ear asking all sorts of questions. So it was kind of like, Landon, can you back off for a minute so I can figure this out first? Well, those of us like myself that have worked with you for a long time, I, I, I pick and choose my moments because I know that, like I said, you are being pulled in so many different directions. And as, as I said, it, it's because you're awesome. It's because of how value, uh, valuable you are. And also because, so let's be honest, the amount of information that you are able to re uh, retain and then regurgitate to us on a continual basis. So it comes from a place of love, but I, I can totally understand how frustrating it can get and difficult it can get uh, when people are asking you, uh, asking you constantly. Okay, let's go to the, uh, the, qu uh, the quarterfinals. I, I would say that the, the, the major surprises in these matchups would have to be um, Qatar going through and Guatemala going through. Everything else just kind of fits the pattern of history. Would you, say, would you, would you agree? Yes. Okay, so um, let's see. Qatar going through, 
so Panama Qatar is one of the uh, one of the games. Qatar going through by the skin of their chin, right? Let's let let's let's be honest. They had no business winning the game against Mexico, and so they had no real business going through. But they bend, but they don't break, and so they go through. Their reward is facing a very very good Panama team. I I don't if they're going to continue to play like this, and I know Panama is not necessarily Mexico, but if they are going to continue to bend and not break, I think it's going to be a, a easy win for Panama because as soon as they do break, there's no coming back for them. Uh, Panama is clearly the better team, but dismiss Qatar at your own peril. They somehow in this competition have managed to do well. They got to the semis two years ago. Here they are in the quarters. You think there's, you think there's still going to be water in that well when they go to it? I don't know. But right. keep in mind, the U.S., if they advance to the semis, would face the winner of this game, Panama or Qatar. Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, Jamaica, Guatemala. I think that this is an easy win for Jamaica. Jamaica, clearly the better team. The only thing I'll say is Guatemalan fans are traveling for this tournament, so I expect there'll be a lot of them in Cincinnati. Now, listen, the Guadalupe-Guatemala game, I love the passion, but it got a little crazy there when you have people throwing stuff at players and the streaker. I know you're going to get to fan stuff in a minute when we talk Mexico, but some thoughts on what took place in that match? Yeah, I mean, the... First off, hats off, I think, to Guadalupe because they entertained us. It was fun to see them. And they they did almost everything they could to go through. But they came up against a Guatemala. And it, I, I love when a team is rewarded for the incredible atmosphere that the fans create. And in this case, the, the Guatemalans were just going nuts. And it was a nutty, nutty game. Um, the, the throwing of stuff on the field... It, I, I hate it. I don't like it. You're an asshole if you do it, as we've said time and time again. But it also is kind of part of the fabric of, of these games. And generationally, it's, it's happened to me and it happened before me and we've talked about it before. And you hope that it's beer, although it's a hell of a waste of uh, probably pretty expensive beer. And if it's not beer, it's even worse. So I, I don't, you can identify people to the extent that you can and uh, and make them and, and punish them for what they're doing. The, um, <laughs> the, the field invasion phenomenon. It's not, I guess it's not a, a new type of thing. People have been running on the field uh, probably for decades and decades. But there was, there was a point yesterday where a, uh, a, a gentleman ran on the field. And we've come to expect that when somebody invades the field, and we use this word invading it, that there is a level of performance that almost is necessary in that you kind of want them to, you know, get chased and run around. This dude came on and he had had plenty of beverage or gummies or whatever, but is the most chill pitch invader you have ever seen in your life. And he just kind of strolled through the 18 as, uh, as uh, you know, as Guadalupe was getting ready to take their penalty in his, uh, in his Guatemalan shirt. And the security just kind of ambled up to him and took him off the field. So there was none of that chasing and there was none of that, let's be honest, we're all humans here. And there is this element of bloodlust that kind of wants to see that moment when security takes it into their own hands and, uh, you know, blindsides some of these uh, folks that think that it's a good idea to go out there because it's, it's entertaining and it kind of sends a message that you shouldn't be out there. But this dude was uh, was lame. Ultimately, Guatemala gets uh, gets through, and uh, congratulations to them. But they do have to face Jamaica, even with a lot of Guatemalans in the stand. I, to your point, I also agree that Jamaica is better than Guatemala. Guatemala relying on a couple of former U.S. internationals: yep. Aaron Herrera at the back, Rubio Rubin up front. Rubin scored twice in this win over Guadalupe. Uh, their coach is Luis Fernando Tena, Mexican Olympic gold medal winner in 2012. Uh, so they've been a fun story in this tournament, but uh, I, I do think it ends here. Jamaica, in my view, the third best team in this tournament behind the U.S. and Mexico. I, I think they move on. All right. Well, I, I kind of buried the U.S. league, but so let's let's finish with the U.S.-Canada. So Mexico, Costa Rica, you know, this is a Costa Rica team that while they had a moment last night, I don't think that it's even close to the heights of Costa Rica that we have seen in the past. And therefore, I think if you're Mexico, this is... This is uh, an easy win. So you don't think the Ticos could be frisky here? No, I don't think that they could be uh, 
I don't think they could be frisky. Um, it, it should be said also, again, this has nothing to do with the actual game. It's one thing if you're streaking or if you're running on the field drunk and stuff like that. It's another thing, the crap that goes on in the stands and just a horrible, horrible um, moment in the stands where there was a stabbing. This, was, this game was played at Levi's. There was a stabbing in the, uh, in the stands. And, and not for nothing, but it's 2023. So not only are you an asshole, but you're also dumb. Because no matter what you do, especially in that setting where there's 80,000 people with camera phones, not to mention the actual security that, that exists in the stadium. So anything that you do, and in particular things that you do that are bad, are instantaneously going to be amplified and put out there for the world and you will be identified and you will suffer the consequences. Uh, and this guy pulls out a knife in the middle of it. And so you ask yourself, well, where the hell was the security initially and how the hell do you get a knife into the stadium? You know, it's 80,000 people and these things, unfortunately, can be missed. But that then there was a fight and that this guy pulls out a knife and we come to find out in the reporting today that the, uh, the attacker and the person that he, the person that he attacked is, uh, you know, was really, really hurt. And now they're looking for people to try to identify, obviously, uh, to charge and to hopefully punish because this is beyond the pale. And it was surreal. Fights in stands, it's, nobody's, nobody is excusing it, but we see this. We see this in sports uh, you know, often. And a lot of times it has to do with alcohol and situational types of things. So that wasn't necessarily something new. It still, it still is horrible. But then this guy literally brought a knife to a, a fight. And that's, that is just absolutely ridiculous. And then in the... Um, in the uh, in the corridors of the stadium there there were you know these women that we were caught on uh, camera fighting so it was just complete mayhem when it when it comes to uh, the uh, in this case it would be the uh, El Tri fans the Mexican fans fighting each other yeah this was Mexico's last group game against Qatar as you mentioned at Levi's Stadium Santa Clara so yeah some ugly scenes Mexican fans in general lately we remember the Nations League semifinal against the US all the incidents there so they need to calm down a bit a bit, yeah. I mean, and I, I, I hesitate and I hate to, you know, kind of lump them all together. But this is El Tri playing. For the most part, when we see this, a lot of times they're wearing Mexico national team jerseys. But yes, they are fans of El Tri, but these are Americans. And so these are Americans in the stands that are doing horrible, horrible things. So stop it. You're, you're disgusting and you're embarrassing. You're embarrassing not only to America, but you're also embarrassing to uh, the Mexican-American community for things uh, for doing things like that. Um, okay. USA versus Canada. Now, this is coming uh, on Sunday. Big, big game. Obviously, our friends to the Great White North, we know them well. They love to tell us about how well they did in the uh, last qualifying round for the World Cup and the trophy they won for coming out first when it comes to qualifying out of uh, CONCACAF. Did not go well in the World Cup. They were on the edge in this Gold Cup of going out, which would not have been a good look. But they took care of business uh, with a... Uh, uh, with a 4-2 win over Cuba, they finished second in the group. And for their efforts, they get to come up against the U.S. As I said last night with, with, uh, with Landon, the U.S. should beat Canada. This particular U.S. team absolutely should beat this particular Canadian team. But Canada, I think, looks at the U.S. in a very different way than maybe every other team in CONCACAF, but maybe Mexico, in that they are not scared of the U.S. Yes, I think they respect the talent and the depth that the, that the U.S. has. But on any given day, I think they believe that they can find a way. And all of the connections and the familiarity that does breed contempt is there. Um, and so I think the U.S. and uh, B.J. Callahan has to really take this, now he's going to take it seriously, but just be careful of going into this Canadian game and think that that's just gonna, it's just going to be easy to roll over. They're going to put up a fight. Yeah, Canada's had a couple of wins over the U.S. recently. They took four out of six points from the U.S. in the octagonal. It was a 1-1 draw in Nashville, and then 2-0 Canada win in Hamilton, Ontario. Yeah, the Hamilton one doesn't count. It took us up there to that. Then there was a win in the Nations League group stage a few years back. Uh, in the Gold Cup, though, this will be the sixth Gold Cup meeting in the U.S., unbeaten in the previous five, four wins, one draw. Two years ago, they met in the group stage. The U.S. won 1-0. The lone goal, Shaq Moore, after 20 seconds, the fastest goal in U.S. national team history. So uh, should be a good one. Another chapter in this rivalry. And the, you know, the continued 
saga that is Jesus Ferreira, and now he's coming up against not a Caribbean nation, so that'll be interesting to see if he is able to parlay uh, his incredible historic uh, level of scoring right now into a game, obviously, that matters, into a knockout type of situation against a Canadian team, like they said, that does not fear this uh, this U.S. team. Should also mention that Jackson Ewell was brought in. We mentioned that Sonora was hurt and you are able to make a change. Some consternation out there uh, about this decision, but Jackson Ewell in the middle of his season, ready to go, and U.S. soccer and, and B.J. Callahan, I think, arguing that this was a player that knows the setup, um, is fit and ready to go, and whoever you are bringing in, you want to make sure that if and when you have to use them, that they do not miss a beat. And I think they just felt more confident in uh, in Jackson Ewell, whether you agree or disagree. But you expect the U.S. to advance. Oh, yeah. So based on what you've said, you're projecting a semifinal of U.S.-Panama, mm-hmm. Mexico-Jamaica. Yeah. That would be tasty. Oh, it'd be, it would be wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, and it's And this is all shaping up, and things could go pear-shaped for... You know, obviously the U.S.-Mexico from a from a financial perspective and I guess from a competitive perspective is something that a lot of people want in in CONCACAF. And from a U.S. perspective, <laughs> that's something that I want to see. It, it, you know, it could be derailed at a certain point, but there is a pathway for for this U.S. team and this particular U.S. Uh, U.S. team. And now it gets serious and nobody's going to give a crap what you did against St. Vincent's uh, or St. Kitts and Nevis or anything like that. And when it comes to Jesus Ferreira, let's be honest, this is when he's going to start being judged at a much higher level. You mentioned Jesus Ferreira, so much discussion about his goals, who they've come against, how to contextualize all that. There was an interesting development in U.S. center forward discourse. In the research world that I dwell in, uh, for the longest time, you've heard people uh, frame certain stats by referencing the top five leagues in Europe. There's been this universally recognized top five of the Premier League, La Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga, and Ligue 1. And so you often hear, well, so-and-so is the leading scorer in Europe's top five leagues this season, or this many Americans have played in Europe's top five leagues this season. Uh, interesting but it's arbitrary, right? I mean, it's, it's subjective, right? There's no real... Well, the interesting development is that the Eredivisie has surpassed Ligue 1 in UEFA's coefficient rankings. So according to UEFA, that is now the fifth best league in Europe. And you know who was very excited about this development? Who's that? Taylor Twellman. Okay. Because he's been banging the drum that the difference between Ligue 1 and Eredivisie is not that great. And he doesn't understand why people put so much more weight in Balogun's goals in France than they do Pepe's goals in the Netherlands. And so he was reveling in this. Uh, he tweeted about it. You see, now the Eredivisie officially is the better league. So I was right. Uh, what, what do you make of all what that? What goes into the, the creation of that results, data? And results that? of the clubs in European competitions over the past few seasons. Okay. But you, I think Taylor would be the first to admit that the phenomenon of a young player scoring a ton of goals in the Eredivisie is traditional. It's long-standing. And there is a long line in history of players doing that. And with that, I think, has come a critical type of thinking as to the difficulty level and or the defenses that play in the Eredivisie. I, I do agree with him that Ligue 1 um, it certainly has cachet, but if you were to tell me that the Eredivisie is better than Ligue 1, I wouldn't bat an eye. I'd, I, yeah, that's fine. It's To be honest, I'm guilty of what Taylor is condemning because I look at it as Balogun was scoring goals in a top European league while Pepe was scoring goals in a second tier league. And maybe that's not fair, but that's just the perception I have of those two leagues. And evidently the numbers don't back that up in terms of the coefficient. Well, now you're going to have to change it. Uh, Balogun is still searching for a new home. We're not sure if he's going to stay in France. Pepe, we know, is signed with PSV, so he'll stay in the Netherlands. Some transfer news involving other U.S. national team players. Christian Pulisic, the latest development in his saga is that AC Milan have upped their offer. Uh, it's being referred to as a package that can get up to $22 million, so that presumably includes bonuses. Um, Chelsea still demanding twenty-five, dollars uh, which Lyon is willing to pay, but Christian Pulisic wants to go to AC Milan. So the question would be, is this close enough where Chelsea might say, the heck with it, let's get this done so we can move on to other business? Um, I mean, I guess it's close enough. And again, this shows that AC Milan 
really wants him. But you, if you're AC Milan, you better have a uh, you know an alternative because if Chelsea just says, "Nah, that's not something that we are they are that we are willing to do," I hope I hope that this is enough. I hope that this is enough to get it across because I think it's a great situation as we talked about before for Christian Pulisic. But you know, that's so. How much is that in dollars? What are we looking at there? Twenty two million. Uh, 22 million euros. Chelsea want 25. Lyon are willing to pay the 25. AC Milan have more or less intimated this is it. This is as far as they're going to go. So do those 3 million matter to Chelsea? This is a club that spent 600 million euros over the last couple of windows on incoming players. Are they going to let a deal fall through over 22 versus 25 million? I don't know. Eh, I don't know. Just let them go. Here's the Fabrizio Romano tweet today about it. AC Milan and Christian Pulisic getting closer after personal terms agreed and player pushing since last week. Clubs now close to agreeing on the fee. 22 million euros, second bid submitted and talks progressing to final stages. Uh, And then he references another player uh, who Milan are pursuing, who I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce uh, his last name, but uh, you can read the tweet if you'd like. Chukwesi? (laughs) Chukwesi. Samuel Chukwesi. That's what uh, what I'm going with. All right. Well, who knows? By the time we talk uh, to you next week, maybe the deal will be all signed and uh, sealed and delivered for uh, Christian Pulisic to be a uh, AC Milan player. Uh, News involving Wesson McKinney, an intriguing one. This is interesting. He's now being linked to Borussia Dortmund. Uh, remember, Dortmund this summer have already lost Jude Bellingham, who went to Real Madrid. Mahmoud Dahoud, who went to Brighton. Even Rafael Guerrero, who can play as a midfielder, went to Bayern. So there's minutes to be had there. McKinney previously played for Dortmund's arch-rival Schalke. He could be heading back to the Bundesliga. And, you know, this was the site of his kind of coming out in European soccer uh, in terms of being in the uh, in the Bundesliga there with, uh, with Schalke. And uh, this is interesting. Uh, I, I think... Is this, you know, for for him, is this a step back or is this a step up? I, I maybe it's just a sideways step. You're coming, you know, to the not arguably the the second best team in in the Bundesliga. You're going to a team that has had a history of success. You're going to a team that is better than the previous Bundesliga team that you went. But you're certainly coming from uh, coming from Juventus. I mean, I I almost want to argue that it's a step up for uh, for Weston McKinney. I like it. I think it's an excellent move. Listen, the way things went at Leeds, his stock has suffered a bit. So That's true, too. This is him landing on his feet as far as I'm concerned. It's better than I expected, to be honest. Well, we'll see if uh, that ultimately happens. So a lot of movement, uh, well, a lot of rumored movement when it comes to players, American and, and, uh, and not. And some of it will come to fruition and some of it won't. But yeah, I think these are these are positive types of things that are uh, that are happening. And who knows, there might be movement when it comes to after the Gold Cup with the aforementioned uh, Jesus Ferreira and some others. So the uh, the silly season is upon us in the best possible way. Anything else, Masi? That's it. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we got some uh, MLS news. Okay, welcome back. Uh, let's talk some MLS, Mossy, because we saw some history happen. Again, we are recording here on Wednesday, July 5th, last night, July 4th, here in Los Angeles, where we broadcast from just a couple of miles down the road at the uh, legendary Rose Bowl. There was a historic crowd, 82,000 plus, packed the Rose Bowl for another edition of El Trafico. Now, keep in mind, this was a rescheduled edition of El Trafico after uh, weather conditions prohibited the game from happening early on in the year. Now, a a game at the Rose Bowl for the LA Galaxy um, has you know historically been something that they do. And yes, you couple it with fireworks and it's a can't-lose type of proposition. But there were fireworks outside the stadium after the game, but there were plenty of fireworks on the field. Ultimately, an LA Galaxy win over LAFC at a time when they could not be more different in terms of their their uh, their standing right now and in terms of the perception of this team. So the LA Galaxy finding a way to get one over in front of a huge crowd at the Rose Bowl, winning 2-1 to one against LAFC. Initial thoughts, Mossy? Yeah, it was over 82,000, a record for an MLS standalone game. Incredible scenes. Galaxy fans brought it. They've been depressed yep. this season, but, man, they were fired up for this one. Uh, Ricky Puj, the star of the night, had a goal and an assist. He had an assist to uh, Tyler Boyd, who connected on a sensational strike. 
Then Ilya equalized for LAFC before Pouge got the winner. Big win for the Galaxy. And for LAFC, I brought this up on our last pod so we can revisit it. That's now five defeats in the last seven MLS games. They're really having a post-CCL hangover. So you do you think it was inevitable or do you think it is relative to CCL? Because if it's just a situation where if you play in CCL, then you are you are destined to go through this <laughs> this horrible period. Is it just a self-fulfilling prophecy for uh, for LAFC? I, I don't know. I think you put so much into winning that competition yeah. that it's hard to transition afterwards to just playing MLS. Uh, but I did not expect this. I have to say, I thought they were going to handle this much better than Seattle did last year, and they haven't. So hats off to Greg Vanny and company, and and in particular, Ricky Pujo, who, who you mentioned. Now, keep in mind, if you remember from, what was it, a month ago, uh, maybe longer, in the Lamar Hunt Open Cup, the Galaxy traveled to BMO um, to face LAFC. And the Galaxy played their starting 11. LAFC did not, and the Galaxy ended up winning. Ricky Puj was uh, phenomenal in that game and celebrated to some um, what looked like excessively in terms of the thing. So much so that after the game, who was it? Giorgio Chiellini. Giorgio Chiellini, who did not play in that game, was walking by while Puj was doing a, a, an interview and in Italian called, that, called him a clown, basically. And so there was this brouhaha of, you know, should you be celebrating a game that in the greater scheme of things doesn't necessarily matter to some or the fact that LAFC wasn't really playing their first 11? Well, this was the real LAFC facing the Los Angeles Galaxy in a competitive setting in, as we said, a historic setting. And LAFC shit the bed. And Ricky Pouge, by the way, was the star of the night. And I love when somebody is big, bold, and yes, arrogant, and then gets called out for it and backs it up. And that's exactly what he did. And I, you know, I, I have from the, uh, from the beginning of this year uh, talked about how I think he is the bright spot. And he is, you know, this, this is a guy that very easily could have just said, eh, I'm just going to go over here and play a little bit and experience life and you know, live the the uh, the American, uh, I guess, American, American dream here. But the competitive side of him is great to see. The goal that he scored yesterday, that had nothing to do with skill. It had nothing to do with his talent is so much greater. It, all it had to do was heart. And for a guy who does have more skill than pretty much anybody else out there, to also add the heart, the run that he made, the ruthlessness ultimately of the of the finish and to risk because that required him diving into an oncoming goalkeeper and there are plenty of players of his talent that would have pulled out in that situation and so he sold himself in that moment and I think in doing that endeared him even more so to the Los Angeles Galaxy faithful uh what else Masi uh the other July 4th game that caught our attention. Inter-Miami 2, Columbus 2. Joseph Martinez with an incredible late equalizer, this acrobatic finish. Yeah, uh, well, first off, Darlington Agnew also scored a great goal. Uh, and it looked like that Columbus was going to win this. And so this is still not a good result for Inter-Miami. And we'll talk a little bit more about, <laughs> about what Inter-Miami might look like. But, but that it's Joseph Martinez. And whether it's, you know, the arrival of of Tata Martino, or obviously the impending arrival of Messi and others that are going to populate this team. This was vintage Joseph Martinez. And the, you know, it was, there was some question the other day on one of my uh, text chains on whether this was actually a bicycle kick. I think we can give it a, a bicycle kick. It's a little, little sideways, but it was beautiful. And it was vintage Joseph coming up big and scoring not just a big goal, but a beautiful goal. And so if if this is the moment when he's back, and if, whether it's relative to the anticipation of what is coming for Inter-Miami or not, it doesn't matter. It was fun to see, and he did kind of roll back the clock, and he looked like vintage uh, Joseph on that moment. Remains to be seen if he can, uh, if he can continue it. But rumors out there that he put, could possibly be getting not just Messi, but uh, plenty others when it comes to restocking that Inter-Miami team. Yeah, Fabrizio Romano also talking about how Sergio Ramos and Jordi Alba are possibilities to join Inter Miami as they continue their efforts to become the near cosmos of this generation and surround Messi with a star-studded supporting cast. 
So it's a right back. Is that what we're looking at? Right back for uh, Jordi? Jordi Alba is a left, left back. Left back. Yeah. And uh, Sergio, Sergio Ramos, Ramos center, started center right back. back, but he's yep. a center back. Yep. Yeah. I mean, does this get you excited? The names are are, are sexy, but does it get you excited? Uh, absolutely. Really? Yeah. What, you think, you think that's what's going to change their fortunes is a left back? And, yeah. And a center back that uh, missed the last couple of years with incredible amounts of injury? And- Actually had a sneaky good season with PSG okay. this past season. Okay. So you do think so? So you're 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 skeptical about all this? It's okay, it's all right. What's uh what's Jordi Alba? Thirty six, thirty seven, something like that. Uh, that seems a bit high, but he's up really? there. He's in his thirties for okay. sure. All right. Well, good. Maybe I'm just poo pooing on them. I, I I you know what? I will, uh, I will take a step back and I will be much more positive about this. Maybe you've convinced me. Sergio Ramos and Jordi Alba, two players who in their prime are considered among the best in the world at their positions. Oh yeah, that's that's without uh, doubt. Yes. And on the topic of best players in the world at their positions, we're going to talk about that in the one for the road today. So stay tuned for that. Okay. Sergio uh, is 37 uh, and Jordi Alba is 34. So, you know, some, some 30 year olds that have done incredible things in their, uh, in their career coming in. So we're just going to populate inter Miami with, uh, with a bunch of 30 year olds and think that that's going to go well. All right. Mousy. Cool. Sounds good. Um, anything else? That's it. All right. Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. All right, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show when uh, you send in your questions, comments, concerns. And uh, if you're doing it over there on social media, our handles are SOTU with Alexi. Or you can call into our Student Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. 657-549-2297. I mentioned that uh, we were on air yesterday and we were working with uh, the great Landon Donovan. And he whether he knows it or not, actually kind of did an Ask Alexi. And I'll, I'll throw it out to everybody that's listening here because I, I kind of need your help and I will pass this along to Landon. So Landon Donovan came into the, uh, the studio and he has in his mind that he wants to have what I would describe as the, the ultimate collegiate football experience. And so his question, and I guess his challenge, and I will throw it out to you, our faithful listeners and viewers of the State of the Union, is he wants to go to a college football game this fall. And he wants it to be the best possible experience in terms of the environment, the lead up. So whether that's tailgating or the bar scene or the ritual and routine that people have in that community to the actual game day experience in the stadium, to the actual competition on the field, to the traditions, all of that. So all of that together, he wants the best possible matchup to go see. And so immediately I'm, I'm with Rob Stone, who is immersed in that, uh, in that world when it comes to college football. And so immediately some of the, the, uh, the uh, Michigan, Ohio State types of things, and Army, Navy, and the list goes on and on and on. What first comes to mind for you, Masi, if you were to give him some advice? Yeah, the issue with Michigan, Ohio State this season is I don't think the game's going to be all that close now that Jim Harbaugh has figured out Ohio State. And with what Michigan has coming back this season, um, Landon might be signing up for a blowout there. Uh, if he wants to see a competitive game, I don't think you can go wrong with some of these SEC environments like LSU and Georgia. So I would probably recommend that. Well, if, if you're out there right now and you're banging your steering wheel or you've stopped your run uh, because we haven't mentioned your, uh, your alma mater or what you believe is the best possible experience out there, please let us know. Because like I said, I want to make sure that Landon has his finger on the pulse out there of what's happening in the fall of 2023. If you were to say, Landon, this is the only place that you need to go and you will have the best time. Let us know, please. Uh, okay, uh, what do we have uh, in terms of uh, voicemails or, uh, or social media questions? Uh, next up, we do have a voicemail. Let's take a listen right now. Hi, Lexi. Hi, Mossy. This is Eric from Northern Virginia, a member also of the Replacement E-Club. Let me start off the question with, I fully agree and think we should, even though we've qualified for the 26 World Cup, have lots of matches against Europe, South America, other countries like that. But looking ahead, I'm worried that when we get around to the 2030 cycle, that if we have not played any CONCACAF people in, let's say, Azteca or Panama City or Honduras or Nicaragua or anywhere else, that we're going to have a bunch of people that have never played in those 
settings. And so I'm worried about that and wondering if we should intersprinkle some matches against CONCACAF opponents away, not at home, um, to get some of our younger players used to that, given that I think in that cycle, we may not have many that have ever experienced that before. Thanks. Enjoy the podcast. Bye. All right. Interesting. Uh, Eric from Virginia. Thank you for the uh, the question and the uh, the call. Yeah. Well, we talked before that it is going to be difficult for the U.S. to get quality opposition here in the next three years. And by the way, for Canada and, and Mexico to get quality competition to prepare for the 2026 World Cup. The experience that one gets going through a hex or an octagonal is is much more as opposed to the actual kicking of the ball, it's much more about the challenges that you face on and off the field of, of going down to some of these places and the, you know, the, the hotels and the travel and, you know, it could be the field, uh, the actual field. It could be the, you know, the craziness that happens at night. All of that goes into blooding a player and a team. The good part is that this team, I do think, has kind of been constructed for 26, where they used 2022. And the majority of players, I think, that were will ultimately be on that field starting for the U.S. in 2026 will have gone through cycles and will have gone through many of the things that we're talking about. Now, you're absolutely right that someone like Flo Balagoon will not have that. He will not be able to access that. And it's not even that you experience the same thing in a World Cup because the World Cup is a very neutral type of environment. The fields are pristine. The stadiums are usually 50-50. And you're not, in this case, you're traveling around a country. I know it's three countries, but for the most part, and then what they're talking about, maybe even regionalizing it, you're not going massive amounts of, of distance. So I don't think that necessarily is going, to, is going to be a problem. But as I've said before, uh, whether it's uh, Mac Rocker uh, or anybody else that is working for that team, including Greg Berhalter, their priority uh, from a U.S. soccer perspective has to be getting ahead of this and making sure, to the extent that you can, you are scheduling good opponents. Now, the U.S. has Germany coming up later this year. That's a wonderful uh, opponent. But there will be moments where you're just going to have to take what you can get and hope that players come that moment when that whistle blows in 2026, even players that don't have that history of playing through a, uh, a World Cup qualifying process are able to recognize that, yeah, it's still the same game. Um, and you can still you can still not have that experience and still be successful in the world. I remember the U.S. tried to schedule a game against Brazil in September, but it fell through. Can I give a quick update on the Brazil coaching situation? I promise Alex Goldstein... It just got announced today, I just saw. So yes, I have no on? other place to put this. So... The Federation president confirmed the plan is for Carlo Ancelotti to take over in the summer of 2024 and to manage the Copa America. I know you're gobsmacked by the fact that Brazil is willing to wait that long to bring in a manager, uh, but it's been determined that the under-20 guy wasn't going to cut it as the interim boss until then. Brazil has eight games between now and the Copa America, six qualifiers and two friendlies. They felt like they had to go out and get a proper coach to bridge that gap. And so they've hired this guy, Fernando Geniz, who is the coach of my favorite club, Fluminense. Now, Fernando Geniz is the one true romantic among Brazilian coaches. He's the closest thing that Brazilian football has to a Bielsa-like figure. I'm a fan. I wouldn't have minded if he got the job permanently. But he is a bit of an odd choice as an eight-game stopgap when you're not going to have all that much time to train with the players. Plus, he's still going to be coaching Fluminense. He's doing double duty. And Brazilian football doesn't stop during the FIFA breaks. So I'm not sure how that's going to work. He's going to have to, I guess, miss games for his club, which pays a salary to go coach the national team. So this whole thing remains very... And will, will Carlo be pulling the strings from outside and watching and telling him, hey, this is who you need to bring in and this is who you need to play? I don't think so. He's going to focus on Real Madrid. And, and again, what if, he, what if he goes 8-0 and it's the best Brazil has ever looked and now Carlo has to come in? I agree so with you. stupid. I just want to say, for me, the obvious solution that was staring everybody in the face here, but for some reason, nobody thought of it. If you're looking for an eight-game stop gap to bridge the gap to Ancelotti was Chichi. Chichi 
and Ancelotti are good friends. They talk all the time. Chichi really respects him. He said he modeled a lot of his philosophies on Ancelotti. He's unemployed right now. He's not really doing anything. He knows the lay of the land. The players know him. And whatever you think of Chichi at World Cups, his World Cup qualifying record is bonkers. And that's what Brazil need right now. Just somebody to get through these first six qualifiers to turn out some good results to keep the train moving and then to hand it off to Ancelotti in the summer of 2024. I actually think Chichi would have been the ideal choice. Instead, they're bringing in Fernando Geniz. All right, we got some Twitter questions here, right? Yes. Uh, first up, Philly C asks, Alexi, would you be playing in MLS or Europe if you were currently in the prime of your career? That's a good question. You know that I wear my MLS heart on my sleeve. And I, as the kids say, I don't know if they say it anymore, I stand for MLS. Having said that, where MLS is now in 2023 is obviously very different from where it was back in... 1996 when it started, or even obviously before it started in 94 when I was over in, uh, in Europe. And there was a belief um, and a desire that I had, and I think it was shared by others, to come back and be there from the start and help start this league. And that superseded any individual um, desires that we had. And, you know, it's, it, it it's it's about it was about pride it was about history it was about being the part of something from the beginning and so if i was in my prime right now it's with an mls that is you know left the gates and is and is doesn't need that right now and i'm not saying that mls couldn't benefit from me or anybody else from that generation and their prime coming back to it but i don't think that the draw would have been as strong as it was back then if I were doing it right now in that I, I, and this is not to get all high and mighty or anything like that, but I felt it was a duty to, to come back. But one that I, that I absolutely wanted, loved and grabbed hold of. And, and, and don't get me wrong. There was a great opportunity also to be there from the start and to pioneer and do all those things that we talked about. But I don't think that that pull, that duty would be, first and foremost in my mind right now. And also the opportunities and the pathways that exist now for American players that we talk about on a consistent basis are such that I think the options that I would have had being, you know, coming off of a World Cup and where I was in my prime would have been plentiful. Uh, Tim Ream starts every week for Fulham. Mm -hmm. At your peak, do you think you were a comparable player to what Tim Ream is now? Uh, he's got a better left foot than me, that's for sure. But yeah, I think I, I, I you think, could play for that level club. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. That was awesome, awesome. <laughs> uh, all right, we're gonna end with a really fun Twitter question. Looking okay. forward to this. Uh, Gary Atkins asks, if you could restart the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame from scratch, who goes in on your first ballot up to five? Wow, wow. Okay, so if it's it, it, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame drives me bonkers, right? Because it's the rock and roll. We've talked about this. Rock and roll has become this umbrella term for all popular music. Exactly. So people like Jay-Z are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You find that ridiculous. You think they should actually stick to rock and roll. Yes. I think, I think that rock and roll, like obscenity is, I can't, I can't define it, but I know it when, I guess in this case, what we when I hear it. And you know what rock and roll is. And some of these groups and some of these artists, they are not rock and roll. doesn't mean that they're not brilliant. I'd almost rather have it just be the Music Hall of Fame. Yeah, there we go, just the Music Hall of Fame. Um, and then you could, I think then you, there's less controversy, but maybe they want the controversy. Okay, listen. So if it's, if it's about recognition of those that changed the game, and, and in many cases kind of established what rock and roll is, then yeah, you have, you know, and uh, who is it, Gary's asking this? He has like Elvis, the Beatles, uh, Zeppelin, these types of things. Um, but, but also Chuck Berry and you know, the list goes on and on. But if I'm doing it, you know, this, this goes back to um, when we do lists. We were actually talking about lists earlier. Here. They, they rate, they click, they, they drive discussion. But when you're doing your best of, it's who influenced you. So when it comes to someone like Chuck Berry, I know I was going to say, well, you don't realize how much the he, he really invented this. No, I didn't grow up listening to Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry, had, Chuck Berry had no influence on me. 
when it comes to someone like Elvis, I knew who he was. But from a musical perspective, it had no influence on me. And again, I know people are out there saying, but you don't understand everything is derivative of these guys and stuff. I, I get that, but I don't, I don't care. I want groups that speak to me. So I'm putting in Zeppelin. I'm putting in Kiss. I'm putting in Van Halen. I'm putting in uh, the likes of like U2, uh, ACDC, Def Leppard, Rat. I know I'm putting in Rat because it's my favorite group. And if it's my freaking uh, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, then I get to choose. Oh, wait a minute. If you had a vote, let's say, for the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame, which you do, right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you're not putting in necessarily who your favorite players were that, imp that influenced you the most. You're putting in who you think are the greatest players in general. So yeah, if but you apply that logic But it's relative here, to my moment. So I can, I can read the bios. I can read the bios of players or artists and stuff like that. And I can have an appreciation for what they did. But there's still going to be a, a human bias in that they, they didn't... I, you know, I, I didn't listen to them. I, All right, well, I interpreted this differently as who would you think are the five most influential figures in, or groups in music in the last 60 or so years. So okay. my five would include the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Elvis, Bob Dylan, and Michael Jackson. How's that? Bob Dylan? Absolutely. As, a, as a rock and roll? Greatest songwriter of all time. Yeah, put him in the Songwriting Hall of Fame. Then, <laughs> all right? This is, what we, this is what we get into. Yeah, I mean, look, if it's... It, it, okay, so, so mine would be... All right, so Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, Van Halen. And I know if I put The Beatles, you've got to put The Rolling Stones, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do it. Van Halen, Def Leppard, and I know I said I would put rap, but I'm not going to do I'll do I'll do you too. How about that? There we go. I, then I can't get ACDC in there. I'll put ACDC instead of Depp Leopard and then you too. I don't know. I'm all over the map. You're killing me here, Gary. Killing me. On the topic of Van Halen, are you a David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar guy? Sammy Hagar is, we were talking about this with, uh, with some folks on the set the other day. Sammy Hagar is so much better of a singer than David Lee Roth will ever be. And yet... I much, much prefer David Lee Roth as a frontman. I mean, he was the archetype of the blonde, bombastic, over-the-top 80s type of frontman. And he will always be great to me. Even though if I had to someone sing someone just from a, a pure performance standpoint, Sammy Hagar is incredible and has a much, much better, quote-unquote, voice. I'm a Gary Sharon guy. <laughs> Look at you. Of course you are. Now, wait a minute. Uh, what's your five again? Uh, all right. Hold on. My five is going to be Zeppelin, Van Halen, the Beatles, and even the Beatles. I sh oh. uh, ACDC and U2. How many total songs among those five groups do you think people like Kiara or Aaron Schechter could name? These are young people that work on our podcast. Not 20 many, but that's to your point. If they did it, it would be people that have influenced them, people that they have grown up with. That's the whole point of, uh, of, of what I'm saying. So I'm being disingenuous by saying Chuck Berry because he, he, has, he has no impact on me from a musical perspective. He doesn't move me in the same way that Rat does. And I know that's sacrilege to say. But that's ultimate, and this is all subjective. This is all music. I can no more tell you what the best food or wine or looking person is than I can tell you what the best band or music is. Uh, East Coast native Aaron Schechter wondering about Bruce Springsteen. What, where does he figure in your list? No, not for not at the top. Not a fan of the boss. No, I think he's incredible. Incredible songwriter. Actually, we were. I I I asked somebody on set the other day. You can only have one songwriter: Bono from U2 or Bruce Springsteen. And, he, and because they write incredible songs, obviously incredibly popular and legendary songs, but they write in such completely different ways. So I'll let you talk amongst yourselves out there as to who you would have. Last question, then we'll wrap things okay. up. Which country do you think has produced better musicians over the last 60 years, England or the United States? Better musicians? Yes. U.S. But, you know, some of the, some of the British music has been fundamental. Uh, we might have to revisit that on a different okay. day because right. it's, a, it's a funny, maybe bring Warren Barton on and he can 
He doesn't know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only Englishman I know, so that's why. Right, there we go. <laughs> okay. All right. Anything else, Masi? That's it. All right. Let's take another quick break. When we come back, I'll give me a, uh, my one for the road. All right, welcome back. It's the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Now, Mossy got all hot and bothered in, in, in a good way uh, a couple hours ago when we were getting ready to do this show and uh, sent us a, a link to the top 100 player lists from uh, our friends over there at ESPN. I know we love lists and they get the clicks and they get the attention and they've done that here. So at, for, for my one for the road, I actually wanted to kind of pass it on and involve you because I know you were all excited about this. Yeah, this is ESPN's list of the top 10 players in the world at each position. That's how they broke it down. This got a lot of people's attention, including our boss, Zach Kenworthy, who emailed me at 4.30 in the morning this morning about this. <laughs> Zach needs to get some sleep. Uh, but nevertheless, I talked about it with my dad today. He's into it. So kudos to ESPN for coming up with something that's pretty interesting. It's voted on by their panel of analysts, Gab Marcotti types. A um, couple of big picture things right off the bat. No U.S. or Mexico player to be found here. Canada has two. Alfonso Davies was the number one left back. Jonathan David, number 10 striker. But no U.S. or Mexico player. I saw a clip of Hercules Gomez talking about this. He went through all the top players for each country and said none of them warranted it after the club seasons they just had. Um, is there any guy you could make a case for? No, I don't think that there's a, a guy that you can make a case for. Does it mean that they aren't as good as anybody on this list? No, not necessarily. A lot of this is perception. And to be honest, a lot of this is absolute reality. And, you know, when you're talking about Holland being number one from a striker perspective, and it, by the way, it should be said that they also had coaches and they had uh, Pep finish, finish number one or Mbappe at number one. Like you mentioned, Bellingham, Saka, um, even from a defensive standpoint, De Bruyne, uh, Hakimi and Courtois and goal and these types of, uh, these types of players. So yeah, I don't think, and that, that it's not a problem. It's just, it's just the reality of where I was going to say, soccer we, right we watched the U.S. beat up on CONCACAF opposition and you think they're very close to cracking the world's elite. Is a list like this sobering at all where you look at it and say, oh, yeah, there's actually still a lot of work to be done to be winning World Cups. You need to have lots of players crack lists like this or no, you still feel bullish about the future, feel great about it. Doesn't affect this. This does not set me back or this does not um, give me pause for the bullishness that I bring to the table when it comes to the American soccer player and what that American soccer player could do. And again, I look at Alfonso Davies uh, as an example. I think the pathway is important and where he went set himself up in terms of enhancing what it already is an incredible player. But you know, had Alfonso Davies gone, I don't know, just a, a mid-level or a struggling type of team, would he have shown in the way that he is able to show? And all, all of that is to say is that the environment matters. And so, you know, sometimes I, sometimes I, I wonder what the perception of the American soccer player, both domestically in the way we look at ourselves and internationally, the way that American soccer players are looked like, is what if... Because Pep is number one here. What if all the players in the world were just simply dispersed out randomly to teams around the world? What would this list ultimately look like? Would American players have a better chance of being of populating some of these uh, some of these lists? And do some of these players? And again, I'm not saying that they're not great players. In some, in some cases, some of the greatest players ever to play the game when all is said and done. But would our perception of them be changed in any way? And is it so enhanced by the teams with, uh, where they play, the competition, or in many cases, I guess, the lack of competition that they face on a continual basis? Uh, second big picture point, Cristiano Ronaldo not on this list you agree with that? Are we ready to move on from Ronaldo, 38, playing in Saudi Arabia? When you think about the best players in the world in each position, is he still a name that comes to mind when you're thinking about attacking players? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, obviously the move to Saudi Arabia has, again, changed perception, whether it's the reality or, or not. 
you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that he is at the top of his game. I don't think anybody would disagree, uh, disagree with that. So is he better than Holland? Is he better than Benzema? Is he better than Kane, who are the top three, by the way, on, on this list? No. Could you make a case and would anybody blink if he had been put in the top 10? No, I don't think so either. Uh, Manchester City was the club with the most players. No issue with that. The Premier League was the league with the most players. No issue with that, although 45 of the 100 players are Premier League players. One might argue that that's a little bit extreme, no? 45 or what? Or- 45 of the 100, or of the, of the total okay, number of players, 45 are Premier League players. Yeah. That, that's, I mean, that it, tracks. Well, it's the most popular league in the world. Is it the best league in the world? I don't know. And I'll bet that there are coaches that are looking at this list and saying, I'm as good as Pep. I'm good as, as good as Ancelotti. I'm as, as good as Spalletti. And if I had the talent that they have in the situations and circumstances that they're coaching, maybe I'd look as good. So it's actually 90 players. It's nine, nine different positions, 10 at each position, and then the 10 managers. That's how you get to 100. There you go. Okay. Uh, now, they can I put my Brazil hat on here for one oh, second? Oh, here we go. They did something that was a little questionable, and I'm going to call it out. And I don't know how smart people like Gab Marcotti can defend this. Uh, so they have... Strikers, which is where they put all the center forwards, the Hollands, the Canes. Then they have wingers, wingers. And then they have another category, forwards, which is where they put the guys who aren't out-and-out strikers, nor are they wingers. That's where guys like Messi and Mbappe fell in. But it makes no sense at all to call Rodrigo a winger and Vinicius a forward. Uh, if you follow those two players with Real Madrid, Vinicius is the guy who's an out-and-out out winger, while Rodrigo is the guy who pops up in different places in the attack, sometimes on the wing, but also sometimes more central as a false nine or as a support striker. So Rodrigo should have been in the forward category, while Vinicius should have been in the winger batch, at which point he would have been number one, unless they're so deluded at ESPN FC that they think Bukayo Saka is a better player than Vinicius Jr. But so as it stands now, Bukayo Saka, the number one winger, that annoyed me. You've got to put Vinicius where he belongs, and then he would have been number one at that position. Do you agree? So you're saying that they, if, if Saka and Vinicius were all in, were in the same category, then Vinicius, Vinicius would, would be, be number one. Instead, Vinicius was number two among forwards behind right. Mbappe. Right. And in front of Messi. And in front of Messi, which was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I bet you the ESPN folks are going, come on, Masi. Because we can, well, we're going to subcategories and the best false nines and the best... Uh, left-sided player that's actually right-footed. You can go, you can do all that. The other thing, too, is there's a category central midfielders and then a category attacking midfielders. And there is some gray area. Uh, for example, Pedri of Barcelona, they put in the central midfielder category alongside the likes of Casemiro and Rodri and Kimmich. When, if you look at the players in the attacking midfielder category, those are players that I equate a lot more as playing the same position as Pedri. So I thought that was the other positional placement that jumped out to me. Positions are bullshit, anyway. Okay. <laughs> uh, so to wrap things up, if you take the best player at each position that they picked, this is ESPN FC's best World Eleven right now: Courtois in goal, Ashraf Hakimi at right back, Alfonso Davies at left back, and the the top two center backs were Ruben Diaz and Vardial. Which, by the way, it could be Manchester City's right. starting pairing next shabby. season. They're trying to sign Vardial from Leipzig right now. Um, and then I'm going to take their two best central midfielders and an attacking midfield and form the midfield that way. So it'll be Rodri and Bellingham with De Bruyne as the attacking midfield. Then I'll take one each from winger, forward, and striker. It would be a front three of Saka, Mbappe, and Haaland. Pretty good team. Pretty, pretty good pretty team. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and Pep coaching on the sideline. And Pep so, coaching on the sideline. Right? Yeah. Oh, yes. the rich get richer. Uh, all right, cool. That, well, that, uh, that was fun. So def- def- definitely, you know, check it out. Like I said, these, you know, these lists, they generate this type of discussion. And you may not agree with some of the, the things that, have, uh, that they've picked or in, in the way that they have defined it. But ultimately, we're talking about it here on the State of the Union. So they win. All right. Let's, uh, you got anything else? That's it. All right. Thank you, everyone, for uh, tuning in. Thanks uh, for the, the folks that sent in the questions and uh, that called on our State of the Union podcast hotline. Again, that's 657-549-2297. Uh, do, do, uh, do that. Or if you want to send in questions, do use that hashtag AskAlexi. Reviewing, rating, subscribing, doing all the different things that you, uh, that you do out there, uh, getting in touch with us on social media. Um, keep doing it. And we love that you do it. And uh, this is fun with what we're doing. We're less than a week away before we head off to Down Under and uh, Australia and our set down there at City for the World Cup. It's going to come fast. But we will be back again next week right here in Los Angeles giving you uh, giving you some shows. And until then, and as always, size the bet.